0: title of my message is, Why I Don't Believe in Atheists. And that's a line I use pretty much whenever anybody tells me, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. I respond, I don't believe in atheists. And I don't mean that merely as sarcasm. One of my biblical and theological convictions is that true atheists really genuinely committed atheists actually don't exist because everyone knows full well that there is a God and that ultimately we will have to give account to him for how we have lived our lives. And that is a truth that is as certain and as inescapable as death. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men once to die and after this comes judgment. And Romans 14 verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And that knowledge is innate in every human soul. It is punctuated and underscored by the glory that we see in creation all around us. And all of that is made very clear in Romans chapter 1. And so that text in Romans 1 is where I want to take you this morning. But while you're turning there, I want to begin with Genesis 1.1, where creation is is first mentioned and summarized for us in a single verse. You probably know Genesis 1-1 by heart, so you can be turning in your Bibles to Romans 1 if you like. But listen as I read this and and think with me about some of the implications that are built into Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I recently listened to a message by A.W. Tozer in which he said... That is the single most important verse in all of scripture that it even surpasses John 3.16. Now something in me recoils from the idea of trying to rank the alternative, the, 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 the relative importance of of key Bible verses. Because all scripture is God-breathed and, and profitable. But of course Tozer believed that as strongly as I do. And so I think I understand what he meant when he ranked Genesis 1 1 as the Bible's most important text. He was pointing out that this is the necessary starting point and foundation for everything else the Bible has to say. On Twitter just this week, a friend of mine, Tom Askell, who was a pastor in Florida of the Southern Baptist Convention, Tom Askell, posted a thread of comments about Genesis 1-1, and he called that verse the most subversive verse in the Bible. He pointed out that one of the implications of that verse is that the universe belongs to God, and therefore he gets to make the rules. I like that point, and it goes to the heart of what I want to say this morning. There is no text in all of Scripture that contains more or explains more than Genesis 1-1. Because literally, literally, everything is in this verse. Everything you can see, everything that's in existence that you can't see, and everything that ever was or ever will be is encompassed in Genesis 1-1. God made all of it. You, You know, some of you will remember... Carl Sagan, who famously opened his television broadcasts by declaring that the ordered universe itself, the universe, is all that is or ever was or ever will be. He would say that at the beginning of every program. And that is a fair summary of atheistic materialism, the idea that the material universe is all there ever is or was or will be. And that idea is refuted in a very pithy and 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 succinct way by Genesis 1 1. Here in this verse, both materialism and atheism are answered with the fewest possible words and without any discussion or polemics. And that's an important point to notice. Scripture is not putting up a theory for debate, the Bible isn't making an argument here. The text simply declares. That God alone is eternal, and he is the creator of everything else that is or was or will be. And it states those truths as brute facts, not hypotheses looking for proofs. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You either believe that or you don't. Moses wasn't trying to start a dialogue about whether it's true or not. He wasn't proposing a premise to be modified by the dialectical process. And so I'm not going to argue the point either, but here's what I want to stress before we get into the Romans 1 text, that in a brilliant economy of words, Genesis 1.1 gives us what is really a clear and stable starting point from which to look for all of the answers to all of the great metaphysical questions that we wonder about. Where did everything come from? What does it all mean? And a a true understanding of everything you find mysterious or incomprehensible begins right here in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the starting point and the opening line, in the story of the universe and it's also the introduction to act one of the great drama of redemption. But its implications are even more far reaching than that. Everything you believe about anything is grounded right here because this text, Genesis 1-1, lays the foundation, the necessary foundation for a truly biblical worldview. It tells us an essential truth and it is the very first of all of the inspired biblical dogmas. So there really is no way to overstate its importance. In other words, this is this is the vital starting point for all truth. You do away with the truth that God created everything out of nothing, and whatever theory you come up with on the life, on the uh, on life and the meaning of the universe, whatever you come up after that, after you've dismissed Genesis 1:1. Anything you come up with will not only be unbiblical, your worldview, the worldview that that results from it, will be irrational or fanciful or incomplete, or internally inconsistent, or devoid of any moral absolutes, or otherwise lacking somehow in both coherence and integrity. Because you simply cannot construct a logical, comprehensive, intellectually defensible understanding of life and reality without knowing where we came from and why. For example, if you don't know something as basic as where where did intelligence come from? Well, if you don't know that, how could you possibly know anything for sure? How could you be certain about the true meaning of anything? If you reject the idea of an intelligent creator as the source of all true knowledge, you can't intelligently explain intelligence. And if you don't know where human intelligence comes from, if you have no clue how we might gain true knowledge of the very first principles of our own existence, then you really don't have any way to account for whatever else you think you know or perceive. And and that ultimately means you just can't know anything for sure. And postmodern thinkers have figured that out. And they basically have embraced the consequences. They recognize that this is the dilemma that they have have created for themselves, they recognize that the minute you remove creation and an all-wise creator from the bottom row of your intellectual Jenga stack, everything else that rests on that foundation instantly collapses. And you can't really have a, a clear, consistent, coherent worldview if you can't even figure out where the world came from, right? If you don't know how the universe started, your worldview, by definition, is grossly deficient from the very outset. If you have no answers for the most basic questions of life, how could you ever be truly certain about anything? And the answer is, you really couldn't. And that's why, starting in the secular academic world, certainty and settled knowledge are practically nowadays regarded as the outmoded relics of a a naive and overconfident past. And you hear people say things like, confidence is overrated. Open skepticism is now being praised as a kind of humility. And that makes perfect sense from a postmodern perspective, because to imagine that you know something for sure, or to declare that something is objectively true when you lack the necessary foundation for any kind of knowledge, it's the height of arrogance to claim, yes, I know this for certain, right? And if it takes humility to confess that you don't know something, then it's the very essence of humility to admit that you really aren't sure of anything. And by that standard, by that same value system, Love means never having to say anyone else's point of view is wrong. And that is the currently dominant value system in most of our culture. Skepticism and liberal tolerance seen through postmodern lenses, that has become the new humility and love. But it's an irrational value system because if you start with the premise that there is no God, it's just not possible logically and rationally To justify the belief that humility and love are inherently better than the alternatives. Because if there's no God, who's to say that love and humility are better than their alternatives? Once you eliminate God from your thoughts, what would ever make you think modesty is better than arrogance or that sacrificial love is morally superior to, say, larceny? And many atheists claim, in fact, most atheists, I think, would insist that they do believe it's better to be humble than egotistical and that it's more noble to share than to steal. They get that, but atheism doesn't really furnish any rational ground for that kind of moral hierarchy. Because in a system where good and bad are defined by the survival of the fittest, doesn't it seem more logical that raw reason would suggest that vulnerability would be the evil of evils? Virtues like love and humility and meekness and long-suffering, these belong to a biblical worldview. Skeptics who believe humility and its fruits are are virtuous, they have simply borrowed values from the very faith they disavow, and inevitably they twist those values out of shape, and instead of opting for genuine love, they concoct a counterfeit love and a false humility. You see, if you give up the belief in intelligent creator, then every spiritual, moral, and intellectual fact you think you know suddenly loses its clarity under a murky cloud of perpetual uncertainty because you simply can't know anything with settled conviction and you can't have any kind of fixed, objective moral standards, so everything becomes hopelessly relative. And, and yet, that is where our culture is today, with, with full awareness that those are the consequences of saying, I really can't know anything for sure, fallen human minds are still so determined... <clears throat> so determined to reject God and suppress the truth about him that they will persist in that regardless of how irrational it becomes. That is one of the points we're going to see in Romans 1. But listen also to Romans 8, verse 7, where it says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Which is to say, unregenerate people hate the God who reveals himself in creation and in scripture. And so, even though the devoted postmodernist realizes that his skepticism undermines and ultimately will collapse his whole moral framework and his fundamental understanding of the universe nevertheless he refuses to set aside his unbelief and to affirm the reality and the necessity of a creator and instead he just repudiates the idea of an orderly and comprehensive worldview, and that's why Meaning is so elusive in these postmodern times and in postmodern discourse. Definitions change constantly in order to accommodate whatever the narrative that's currently popular says. So, now think this through with me one more time, and I'll say it in the simplest way I know. The skeptic looks at the question of how everything came from nothing, and he tells himself that is a question that cannot be answered. But if you don't have any explanation for how anything came to be in existence, then quite literally is what you're saying is you don't know the first thing about anything. That is the high cost of skepticism. Eliminate God from your knowledge and you basically give up the possibility of knowledge completely. You forfeit the possibility of being truly certain about anything. And as I said, the postmodern mind has essentially accepted those consequences, and that's why uncertainty is the the defining characteristic of postmodern thought. Postmodernists are pretty certain that certainty is an impossibility. They'd be completely certain about that, but they can't be completely certain about anything. And so they reject all of the necessary tools of intelligent discourse, clarity, specificity, non-contradiction false or fixed definitions, observable facts. These things are simply impossible concepts for postmodern people to embrace. So the postmodernist claims no one can really know the true meaning of anything, or he can't even really say for certain that anything has true meaning, because the postmodern mind has rejected the foundation of understanding at the very beginning of everything. The only option is irrationality and infinite relativism. And that is an option that, throughout human history, sane and sober minds have rejected consistently. Because if you give up knowledge, if you throw out every hint of certainty, if you eliminate all objective truth, you've completely given up the possibility of true meaning. And meaninglessness is a surefire recipe for Human despair, it's, it's a suicidal path in many ways. For one thing, if you, if you rule out God at the start and then you follow that trail really without flinching or compromising or pretending or, or turning aside, you stick to your atheism you know, as if you really believe it. That is a direct path to moral and intellectual nihilism. You eliminate the truth of creation and the person of the creator from your understanding and the toll on your character along with the damage that will be done to your, your intellect, your understanding. It's a price that's really too high for anyone to pay. And so what we believe about the origin of the universe has dramatic practical consequences. Creation is not just an interesting theoretical enigma. The question of where we came from is is not a riddle that you can safely set aside like a, a Sudoku puzzle that was too hard to solve. What we're dealing here with is one of the fundamental issues of human life and existence. And every sentient human being wonders about these things. We all ask these questions. Where did everything come from? And what set it all in motion? And that is the very question Genesis 1-1 gives a definitive answer to. And because it's such an important question, with such profound ramifications and and far-reaching consequences, the answer the Bible gives us is purposely not complex. It's not deeply philosophical. It's not hard to understand. It's the very essence of simplicity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, one other thing by way of introduction, and I apologize for the long introduction, but I do want to turn to Romans 1. But before we do... One other thing, that question, where did everything come from and what set it all in motion, that is not a conundrum that can ever be untangled with the use of just simple bare human reason or intuition or philosophy or dialectics. God himself had to reveal the answer. The answer does not lie within us. It's also not a question that can be settled by natural science because science deals with observable and repeatable and and demonstrable phenomena that can be tested and measured and verified. By definition, creation ex nihilo, that is begetting everything out of nothing, that is not one of those activities you can run experiments with. If you thought it was, I hate to burst your bubble... You can't play with with the idea of creation, because you will never create anything out of nothing. Only God could do that. Now, obviously, there are astrophysicists and cosmologists, geologists, theoretical physicists, and other scientific types who talk about this issue, and they acknowledge the difficulty of it. They, They put forth various theories about Big Bangs, and dark energy, and endless cycles of existence, or whatever. In fact, one thing all of the current popular academic theories have in common is the idea that creation occurred spontaneously, without any concept of God or an intelligent designer. But the truth is, none of those theories could ever be proved by the scientific method, because there is simply no way to recreate that process. Plus, the whole idea of random, serendipitous creation is totally fanciful. This is not a scientific idea. Spontaneous creation? That should be obvious on the, on the face of things. Life does not generate itself spontaneously. And it also needs to be said that the issue of origins... Is, isn't answered even theoretically by evolution, the doctrine of evolution. Evolution posits gradual changes between species. It doesn't even address the issue of where everything came from in the first place. Evolution actually sidesteps that question, and for a very simple reason, because evolution cannot account for the origin of life, much less the origin of matter and motion and energy and the rest of the universe. So we're put right back to that same question. Where did everything come from? And scripture says our eternal, omnipotent, intelligent God has the power to call things into existence out of nothing. Just by his word. And scripture says that's how the universe began. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Scripture is very clear about this and surprisingly simple. If you try to answer the question of origins, leaving God out, you end up with this impossible, irrational, mathematical formula that nobody plus nothing equals everything. That's the equation you have to accept in order to be an atheist. And I don't believe anybody really believes that. So atheism is sheer nonsense on the face of it. Only a wicked fool says in his heart there is no God. No matter how many scientists are comfortable with the idea, no matter how many academically credentialed geniuses add their amen to it, It is simply not rational to think that this vast, dynamic, orderly universe sprang from nothing with no intelligent architect and for no particular reason. Not a rational idea. Now, there are people who are so determined to sustain their disbelief in God who will suggest the possibility that human life on Earth was planted by extraterrestrials, you know, intelligent beings from other planets uh, came from different dimensions or whatever. I I mentioned Carl Sagan, who who was the astronomer and astrophysicist who, who attained celebrity status through a television series on PBS. He was devoted to projects that went looking for life elsewhere in the universe because that's what he believed, that life was planted by aliens on the earth. But intelligent life in outer space would only push those cosmic questions further back out there. Where did your hypothetical space aliens get their start? Who created them? And where did they get their superior intelligence? Where does intelligence come from? Any theory about the origin of the universe that eliminates God as creator, all of them turn out to be impossible nonsense. Without God, where did the original stuff, whatever you think it was, matter, matter, energy, ectoplasm, whatever, where did that come from? Or if you think, if you really believe that matter itself is eternal, if time and matter are the ultimate realities, why isn't everything inert? If you think energy is the ultimate reality, what keeps it in constant flux and, and how does it produce so much order and so many perfectly designed systems and organisms. And the relentless return to those very same questions demonstrates the absolute impossibility of the atheist's position. It is a bottomless hole of infinite regress. On the other hand, the biblical account of creation is simple truth revealed by the one being who was actually present at creation, The one eyewitness gives us his account and people who think they are intelligent refuse to believe it. Here is the one true answer to the great cosmic conundrum from the creator himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is truly a vitally important fact because without it, nothing really makes any good rational sound sense. So with all of that in mind, And that is just foundation for what I want to see in Romans 1. Turn with me, or look with me. Hopefully you've already turned there. Romans 1, two verses, verses 19 and 20. And let's talk about some of the truths, obvious truths, that God has built into creation. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. And here's some context. Paul has just stated in Verse 18, that unrighteousness is the motive that causes people to suppress the truth that they innately know about God. In our natural fallen state, as people who've inherited a love for sin and a tendency to sin, the only way we can live with our own guilt is to deny what we know to be true about God. Because guilty sinners simply can't abide God's wrath against sin or his holiness or or any of his other righteous attributes. And in the end, the determined sinner will even deny that God exists. But the Bible says they know better. Their own consciences bear witness to both their guilt and their God. Furthermore, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now that's our text, and and the central idea of that text is, is simple, simply that God plainly reveals himself in creation. All of creation is God's divine self-revelation. The universe itself is designed to reveal God and put his glory on display. And furthermore, creation is his most obvious self-revelation. In the words of Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands so that anyone who simply looks at creation can see ample truth about God, clearly revealed. In fact, listen to the next few verses from Psalm 19. It says, creation speaks at all times, day to day and night to night. That's Psalm 19, verse 2. It speaks in all languages, verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. It speaks silently uh, across the language barriers. Then then third, it speaks to all people, verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and the utterance to the end of the world. So what the psalm is saying is that the universe reveals God in a way that is accessible across every language barrier, every geographic time zone, to every person without exception. There is no excuse for not seeing it. Now, it makes perfect sense that if you reject the most basic and most conspicuous truth about God that he has revealed about himself of course you're not going to be able to make good sense out of God or anything else and that is exactly what the bible teaches 1 corinthians 2:14 a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of god for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined his problem is he's rejected the idea of god from the beginning So the things of God can't possibly make sense to him. So here's the point I want to zero in on. No matter how popular it might be to reject creation on supposedly scientific grounds, no matter how many great minds among the academic elite reject all of the truth that is so clearly revealed in creation, scripture says there is no excuse and no justification for any of that skepticism. Because creation itself, is a brilliant work of revelation, and that's why the universe is so vast and awesome. It's purposely designed that way to make obvious the the immeasurable greatness of the creator. Creation is God's self-revelation, and the truth is right there wherever you look around you, wherever you look. So, we have to ask then, what truth is he talking about here? What truth about God is built into creation? What kind of truth about his character or his attributes, the way he works, or any other points of theology, what truths are spread out for us and clearly seen being understood by that which is made, to use Paul's language? And I see three categories of vital doctrine that are obvious on the face of the visible universe. Here's how I would classify the, the key truths that God has revealed in creation in three categories. Number one, creation shows us the magnificent glory of God. And number two, it shows us the fallen glory of humanity. And number three, it shows us the awful Curse of sin. So let's look at those three categories one at a time. If you want to take notes, I'll use those three points as an outline. First, we see in creation the magnificent glory of God. And as scripture says, this is obvious. That which is known about God is evident within them for God has made it evident to them. Which doesn't mean, of course, that everything you could possibly know about God is revealed in nature. Because the fact is, you would never discern the truth of the Trinity or or the incarnation and mediatorial work of Christ by looking at nature. The fact is, some of the truth that we need to know about God must be taught to us by special revelation. And that's what scripture is for. But the stress here in our text, is on the clarity of the revelation that is given to us through creation. To paraphrase, that which is known about God is evident because God made it evident. Creation is not a a vague or indistinct revelation. Its message is crystal clear, and you can see it wherever you look. And furthermore, the universe actually has a lot to say about God. There's a host of divine attributes that are Patently obvious through creation. You see in it his power, his, his wisdom, his love of beauty and order, and even his loving kindness and sovereignty show up in nature at times. Those are just some samples of the divine attributes that scripture points out and says these things are obvious in nature. To cite one obvious example, Jesus said God's loving kindness and his sovereignty can be discerned from the fact that he dresses the lilies in glorious clothing and he knows every movement of every sparrow. Or consider the book of Job. We studied it in the adult fellowship group this morning, and that was great. When I came, I thought, the middle of Job, I hope I don't doze off. (laughs) But he made the text so clear and so relevant, I was really edified by it. And I think, frankly, the second half of the book of Job is one of the most breathtakingly amazing sections in all of Scripture because Job, you know, has suffered uh, unspeakable grief. He has been subjected to a confusing mix of some pretty good and some really bad counsel from his friends. He has deflected their accusations against him. He has complained bitterly about his circumstances, just as you and I would if we were in the same boat and he has questioned and challenged God himself regarding the reason why he was suffering. And then Job has pretty much hit rock bottom in his despair, and at that moment, God finally arrives on the scene, but he comes not with words of comfort and an explanation for Job, but God comes in a whirlwind with a rebuke aimed at Job. Now, bear something in mind. God himself had already said this about Job, that he is there's no one like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Those were God's words of affirmation about Job spoken to the devil in Job chapter 1, verse 8. But what I find remarkable about the book of Job is that when he finally speaks to Job himself, God's words are of a different sort. The Lord scolds him, for thinking too little about God, for for entertaining thoughts about God that underestimated and miniaturized the Almighty. And and by the way, think about this. If God scolded a man like Job for having stunted thoughts about God, what do you think he'd say to the rest of us? Anyway, chapters 38 through 41 of Job record this reprimand from God, and it is a catalog of truths about God that are visible in nature. He starts out in Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Which is a reference not only to the Lord's omnipotent strength, but also his infinite wisdom. Continuing in verse 4. Tell me, Job, if you know, if you you have understanding, the Lord says, who set the earth's measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? or on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, which is a poetic description of the creation event. He goes right back to creation to talk to Job, and his rebuke goes on then for four full chapters citing things Only the Lord himself can do things that are beyond the realm of human power or comprehension. Things the Lord has made that are frankly too wonderful for the human imagination. And things that the Lord knows that are hidden to all of us as mere creatures. For example, he challenges Job with the classic epistemological conundrum. You know, where did you get your knowledge? Verse 36, who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who did that, Job? He points to animal instincts as proof that knowledge has been placed in the mind of living creatures by a mind that is infinitely wiser than the most intelligent human. Chapter 39, verse 27. Is it, he says to Job, is it at your command that the eagle goes on high and raises his nest high? Are you the one that taught the eagle how to do that? Or where do you think the eagle got that knowledge and by the time you get to chapter 40, God is still speaking. Verse 2, will the fault finder contend with the almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Which is a good answer to any skeptic or, or atheist. You think you're smarter than God? Here's some questions you can't answer. In other words, if you think you are entitled to question God or doubt him, look at everything that he's made Ponder it and then think again. Because the point is that God's power and his wisdom are so clearly on display in creation that even a righteous man like Job had no right whatsoever to question God, even though Job is in the deepest pit of despair without any explanation about why and even though he was suffering without so much as a single word of comfort or hope from God, it was not his place to subject God to cross-examination. Now, and this is important, the point of this is not to magnify Job's guilt. The Bible expressly tells us he was the best of men. The point is to magnify the glory of God. That glory fills the universe, and it's written in capital letters and bold type so that anyone who has eyes to see ought to be seeing it all the time. And that is, in fact, the most obvious truth we learn about God from nature, that he is glorious. He is great and glorious. Every molecule of the universe unveils and declares God's glory. You can see amazing, majestic displays of incomprehensible glory from any conceivable perspective. It doesn't change no matter what your perspective is. The glory of God is on display, full display, in vivid, intense, graphic detail, no matter where you turn your eyes. Look in the most powerful telescope at the outer edges of the current technology's ability to see, and what you will observe is breathtaking glory. And we see this more and more every day, if you've been watching the news Or look in a microscope at any random drop of pond water and you'll see glory of a different kind, but it's equally glorious, equally impressive. You take even the ugliest, most grotesque-looking insect and examine it closely under a powerful lens, you can't help being astonished at the intricacy and the ingenuity and even the beauty in the way that bug was designed and made. You know, the eyes of a common housefly fly are a thousand times more marvelous than the greatest of all human inventions. And you want to tell me that that happened by accident? Creation will astonish you, whether you view it close up or far away with a wide-angle lens or with a magnifying glass. All of creation is impressive beyond words in every dimension and every detail, and it fairly screams out the wisdom and the glory of its maker, and God created all of it out of nothing. What's nothing? You can't even conceive of it. You probably don't. When I say nothing, you might be thinking of empty space, but even that is something. Spurgeon said, you've never yet grasped the idea of nothing. The eye cannot see it. The eye couldn't look at nothing. It would be blinded. Nothing is a thing which the senses cannot grasp, and yet it is out of this awful nothing that God made the sun and moon and stars and all things that are. That's exactly what scripture says. This vast, incredible universe is the work of God, the creator, and his intention from one end of the universe to the other is to show us just a glimpse of his glory and his grandeur. All of creation is one massive display of divine glory that frankly you can't possibly overlook. You can't miss it. A universe full of truth about God is right there in your face all the time. Assaulting your human senses with undeniable facts that God wants us to know about himself. And, I, and I don't, I, we don't have time to catalog even a short list of the wonders of creation. There are whole books full of information about creatures with incredible features that, that defy theory, that all of these species evolved by chance. The point is that scripture says the truth of creation and and the proof that there is intelligence behind that creation is obvious and people are without excuse when they try to suppress that truth. By the way, the psalmist writes frequently about how God is revealed in creation. I quoted from Psalm 19 already. The first half of that psalm is an anthem about the glory of God in nature. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and the, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 8 also takes up this same theme and it's a prayer addressed to the creator. O oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who displays your splendor above the heavens. That's Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 8, verse 1. One of David's psalms. David, you know, as a shepherd, he's out there observing the glory of God in the heavens and he is smitten with a sense of his own unworthiness and he writes when i see your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have established what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him the vastness of the universe makes him feel his own significance and david was looking at it with his bare eyes imagine if david knew what we know about how big the universe is. You know, cuz he was limited to what he could see with the naked eye. We've now got the James Webb Space Telescope that can see further than you could possibly imagine. The Webb telescope, you know, it was launched last year on Christmas Day and it began sending its first images back from space just a few weeks ago. 6 months after it was launched, the first images were released to the public on July 11th earlier this year. And within weeks, that telescope has been started taking breathtaking pictures of things we've never seen before. Just this week, this past week, astronomers uh, identified a single star in one of those photographs that they say is the most distant star we have ever seen. They named it Irundel after a character in a Tolkien novel. And they say that it is 12.9 billion light years away from Earth. I would explain to you how far that is, but I can't. It's not possible. That is a distance further than you could possibly imagine, but it's nothing, nothing compared to the newly discovered galaxies that that telescope can see. Beyond that star, there are a whole galaxies not just stars and comets but massive galaxies some of them larger than the milky way and they are larger and further away from earth than anyone had ever pondered before one of them is a galaxy that rather ingloriously was named C E R S C E E R S 93316 i wish they'd named it after a tolkien character i'd call it frodo but okay Anyway, astronomers say that is 35 billion light years away, meaning that if you could travel from here to there at the speed of light, it would still take you 35 billion years to get to the outer edge of that galaxy, the closest part of it. So if you're planning to go there, pack a lunch. (laughs) But I can't imagine that, and uh, I don't know if you can even try, some of you are certainly more scientific than me. But the vastness of the universe puts our relative insignificance in perspective, doesn't it? And yet, as David says, the glory of God is revealed within the human creature in a unique and particular way. That's David's point. As vast as the universe is, as much glory as we see there, we see the glory of God even better in the ways made the human creature. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. Yet you have made him little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Which is true uniquely of humanity, of all of the creatures here on earth and all of the galaxies in the heaven. None gives a more articulate and obvious revelation of God's glory to man than man himself, who was made in God's very image. And that's the second category of theological truths we learn from creation. Number two, if you're taking notes, in it we see the fallen glory of humanity. There's no question that humanity bears the stamp of God's likeness. No other creature, not even the highest archangel, was made in God's image. And you can see the image of God imprinted on the human soul in, in the unique Moral and spiritual attributes of the human creature, those things that set us apart from the animals. For example, the human intellect is uniquely capable of self-reflection. We, we, we think about ourselves in ways that, frankly, your dog doesn't. He doesn't think about himself that way. He just wants to know the next meal. You think about these questions like, where did I come from and what does it mean? Plus, we're creative. We are moved by beauty. We speak a variety of complex languages. And our moral instinct, that innate sense of right and wrong, is unparalleled in the animal kingdom. You dog may act like he feels guilty, but he doesn't sense right and wrong the same way you do. We have a conscience that declares our guilt to us if we do wrong. And no other creature manifests anything like the human craving for communion and fellowship with God. We're spiritual creatures. Animals don't practice religion of any kind. And yet it's clear, isn't it, that the human race, the entire race, is fallen. People do evil things, all people do. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Sin is a plague on humanity, and you can see that in the news headlines every single day, and increasingly so as evil men and imposters, imposters proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, just like Scripture told us it would happen. And furthermore, as the apostle says in the verse that immediately precedes our text, Romans 1.18, Fallen men unrighteously suppress the truth that they see in nature. We willfully disclaim and deny what we ought to be able to see with our own eyes. And people try to conceal the glory of God from their own consciences. They intentionally pretend that it's not even there. But Paul says they don't have an excuse, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since his creation of the world and his invisible attributes, both his eternal and power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what is made, so that they are without excuse. Notice verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them. That's a literal rendering of verse 19. The knowledge of God is within them, not just among them or around them, but within them. And in the, in the verse In the words of the English Standard Version, it says, it is plain to them. Verse 21, they knew God. That means that vital knowledge of God is actually innate in the human mind. God created the mind with that knowledge imprinted permanently there by the creator himself. You were born with knowledge already in your mind. A totally blank mind would be like a computer without you know, boot software. You wouldn't have any means. If you didn't have knowledge in your mind from the start, you wouldn't have any means of interpreting or cataloging data. You have to know something in order to make sense of anything. So where does that original knowledge come from? Here's your answer. God put it there. Some... Rudimentary knowledge is innate in the human heart and the centerpiece of that knowledge is an awareness of the God who put it there. It's not a complete or comprehensive understanding of all the truth about God, obviously, but it certainly includes some sense of right and wrong and good and evil and justice and injustice. We all have those concepts. We all recognize their validity It's God who puts that knowledge in the human heart. God puts knowledge, including some knowledge of himself, in every heart. It was Elihu who was speaking the truth in Job 32, verse 38. And what he says is true here. He says, the breath of the Almighty gives us understanding. It's not perfect understanding or complete knowledge, but it is God who gives you the ability to gain knowledge. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam, he gave us a basic moral compass and according to Romans 2.15, a conscience that either accuses or excuses us. Romans 2.15 expressly says that God's moral law is inscribed in some fashion on the human heart. So that a set of fundamental spiritual truths was engraved on our souls from creation. It's, again, not exhaustive knowledge, but it's enough to remove the excuse of total ignorance and enough to make us aware of God and his glory. Verse 19, that which is known about God is evident, that meaning it is obvious within them. In, in, built into our hearts and minds. And at the same time, there is a tendency in every fallen human heart to suppress or ignore that knowledge. And that is the proof that the entire human race is fallen. You know, the doctrine of original sin is not the, the most popular dogma in Christian theology, but it is the one vital doctrine that is vividly proved by empirical evidence. Everyone sins. Human history is a story filled with wars and atrocities and monstrous horrors that are the fruit of human fallenness. Ours is a fallen race. And furthermore, we are all conscious of our own sin. We feel guilt. We sense our accountability to someone higher than us. We try to suppress the guilt feelings, and and some people are amazingly successful at that, sadly. But suppressing guilt only makes a person worse, doesn't make you more well-adjusted. Someone who feels no guilt whatsoever is a psychopath. So we're sufficiently aware, aren't we, of the human dilemma just by the light of nature alone. Humanity is a fallen race. We all know that. And time doesn't permit me to be long-winded about this, so I hope you see the point. But let me move now to the third and final category of truths, that we learn from creation. The order and reality of created things shows us not only the magnificent glory of God and the fallen glory of humanity. Here's category number three. Nature shows us the awful curse of sin. Again, time doesn't permit me to be verbose here, but I don't need to say much about this anyway. There is ample evidence in nature... That something has utterly devastated God's creation, especially in the realm of human activity. Anything humanity touches is ruined. Now, skeptics and scoffers will try to blame God or, or blame even his absence for anything that goes wrong. You know, where was God when that catastrophe occurred? Or where was God, if God is such a, a loving and masterful creator, why did he make viruses and mosquitoes? Or, why do things break down and people die? Why is this world so full of pain and toil and tragedy? And scripture, of course, answers those questions for us definitively. Creation is cursed because of humanity's sin. That's Genesis 3. But the point here is that the reality of evil and the effects of the curse are perfectly obvious in nature itself. In the words of Romans 8.22, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together. We groan. Human life is, it generally starts with a cry and it ends with a groan. It's bookended by pain and displeasure. Everyone dies. Everyone experiences deep sorrow. Trouble defines the human condition. Job 5, verse 7, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Something is clearly wrong, right? And we can tell both intuitively from what our own consciences tell us and experientially from observing the laws of the universe, we can tell that whatever is wrong has something to do with human sin. Even the materialistic atheists fretting about climate change, are are certain that whatever's wrong with the world is humanity's fault. They get it. So even the awful curse of sin is obvious when you look at creation. So God's majestic glory, man's fallen glory, and sin's awful curse, all of that is loudly proclaimed by the things that are made if you have ears to listen. On the other hand, the good news, the answer to the human dilemma is revealed only through special revelation. God gave us his word, the Bible, to show us the way of salvation and redemption from the curse. And then he sent his son, the ultimate, final self-revelation of God, Jesus Christ, to verify and, and fulfill everything scripture ever promised. That's not just special revelation. That's perfect revelation. Christ lived a perfect life navigating this cursed world without himself ever once being defiled by sin. And then he died to pay the penalty of sin, offering an atonement that is more than sufficient for all the sins of everyone who will ever believe. And therefore, he offers eternal life in a redeemed universe, a new heaven and new earth, a new creation, untainted by sin and uncorrupted by the curse. And that is his promise to all who confess their fallenness and repent and trust him alone as Lord and Savior. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. That's the truth that all nature ultimately points us to and prompts us to look into. If creation is the foundation of all truth, the gospel is the central truth to which all other truth points. And Christ himself is the very pinnacle and the incarnation of all of that truth. If you've not yet embraced him as the way and the truth and the life, my prayer for you is that God will open your eyes to see and that your entire life and worldview will be transformed by the truth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do glorify you for the wonders of creation. We realize that nature itself teaches us that Our poor tongues are inadequate to express worship that in any way befits your infinite glory. But may we see your glory as it is revealed in Christ. May we reflect that glory as you conform us to his likeness. And may your glory shine through all eternity. And may we shine with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.